The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. I was stubborn and egocentric. When own life thoughts occurred to me, I reveled in them. I went into the proletarian zones. I had sex with prostitutes. I deliberately contracted syphilis. My agents forged documents and gained entry to the Ministry of Truth. Thought crime is death. Thought crime does not entail death. Thought crime is death. I have committed, even before setting pen to paper, the essential crime that contains all others in itself. Welcome, everyone. It is Thursday, January 27th, 2022. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing, it's just right. Fade into color, color into black and white, under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. Possibly one of the most depressing stories ever written or put on film, George Orwell's 1948 novel, 1984, turned out to be a prophecy rather than a warning. And I've heard a number of video bloggers and podcasters refer to our current pandemic as COVID-1984, obviously combining the term COVID-19 with the title of Orwell's book, of course with the intention of drawing a connection between the two, and the association is quite appropriate. But in addition to that association, the year 1984 has an additional personal significance to me. One that has only over the past few weeks made that significance particularly visible, primarily because of what we've been discussing on the show during that recent period. Last week, you might recall, Robert Vaughn and I did some reminiscing about our own personal experiences with politics and with the various political parties, candidacies that we went through on every level of government, municipal, provincial, federal, at a time when neither of us really knew what we were getting into. And of course, to this very day, I remain involved with the provincially registered Freedom Party of Ontario, a party that came into being on the first day of the first month of the Orwellian year 1984. And the significance of that is the theme of our show today as I share with you some of the haunting things that we were saying in the year 1984 that turned out to be as prophetic as the novel of the same name itself. It all gets underway right after our reminder that you can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org. Hear us on WBCQ and on Channel 292 Shortwave. Follow and like us on your favorite podcast platform and visit us at justrightmedia.org where you can access all of our social media links and our archived broadcasts. And as always, your financial support is appreciated and is what makes this show possible. Now, as you may be aware, there is currently a caravan of truckers traveling across Canada from differing locations, all intending to converge in Ottawa on 29th, if my current understanding still holds valid, by the time we go to air with this broadcast. Mandate Freedom, read one of the posters I saw on the front of a truck. And just for the record, I'm totally behind that kind of mandate. As contradictory 
as it is, because of course you can't really force people to be free, especially when they're being held prisoner by their own fear of an invisible enemy or by the political choices that they have made in the past. One of the tragic ironies of living in a free society is that freedom comes to be taken for granted, resulting in a broad disinterest or disdain for politics. As long as they're being left free to pursue their own livelihoods and interests, most people do not see politics as relevant to their daily lives or their personal freedoms. Today, finding themselves deprived of the freedom that they took for granted, many individuals are considering political involvement for the first time, perhaps participating in something not so unlike the truck convoy currently heading to Ottawa. Now, it'll be interesting to see if this particular protest can accomplish what Robert Vaughn last week suggested has never been done before, changing a government's course as a consequence of public outcries or protest. A reality we had to accept in our conversation last week was that political protests, petitions, and rallies seem to have little or no effect on the fascist agenda of the Western nation's governments today. Our tyrants came to power using the political party system, and that is precisely how they can be removed from power, suggested Robert. And in preparing for that discussion last week, I went back to the beginning days of Freedom Party back in 1984 just to see what we were saying back then, and if it might be relevant to our current political crisis. You know, many of us who object to this medical fascism today are frustrated with the task of waking the public up to the danger of the tyranny that they are now living under. And I'm very familiar with this frustration because I've been dealing with it, well, since 1984. And to that end, I'd like to share with you today a bit of what Freedom Party was saying about our political environment in 1984, which has nothing to do with pushing any particular policy, platform, or issue of the day, but which still expresses observations that hold as true today as they did then. You know, we used to publish these brief statements in a format we called issue papers. And to commemorate the year in which our party was launched, we actually put out an issue paper called 1984 is Here, written by a fellow named John Cosser. And remember, we're talking about the new normal today. What you're going to hear described here, that was the old normal. Listen to this, and I quote, Consider Canada, which is not unlike most other Western countries. The state owns most of the schools, dictates what is to be taught, even in the schools it doesn't own, and forces all under a certain age to submit to its brand of teaching. The method of payment for schools is by force. The state also restricts the granting of higher educational degrees to the institutions which it funds from taxes. Teachers' salaries are set by the state and bear no relationship to the satisfaction of either the students or their parents. So guess what subliminal political message our children are learning for the first 16 years of their lives? Society is run by coercion. The state spends more money on advertising than any other business. Think about this. Of course, today we would call that propaganda. One out of every six Canadians is directly dependent on a government paycheck or grant. More than a million Canadians are paid by the state for not working. Those who do work are taxed unmercifully, and those who work overtime usually give 
nearly half of their extra earnings to the state. The state pension plan, into which everyone is forced to pay, is actuarially unsound, much like a pyramid betting scheme. The state has its own broadcasting network, which outspends all the others because it is financed through taxes. The state dictates what kinds of programming are allowed on all radio and TV stations and revokes licenses when a so-called middle-of-the-road format is not adhered to. And of course, today in 2022, the state funds practically all of the mainstream propaganda machine. Although the state outlaws the sale of some of the most popular psychoactive drugs, it profits handsomely from peddling two of the most harmful, alcohol and tobacco. It outlaws private gambling but profits from state lotteries. Its masses of laws and regulations would fill not just your living room but the entire main floor of an average house. It forbids private companies from conspiring to limit competition but grants its own crown corporations monopoly status. <laughs> Fascism, anyone? The state imposes limits on how many hours a day you can work, how many days a week you can work, how old you can be to start work, how much you're allowed to be paid, and even in Quebec, whether you're allowed to speak English or French on the job. The state prints and circulates its own legal tender, which it regularly inflates when it goes on a spending spree, and then it blames you for failing to practice restraint. Now, you know, I just had to say, this is an earlier variant of the same blame game the state is foisting on small business by regulating and locking them down today. It sets the interest rates, but lays the blame elsewhere when the rates go sky high. And of course, today we're dealing more with inflation than with high interest rates. Short of outright brainwashing, only one CIA-funded case of outright brainwashing has been documented in Canada, all of the frightening elements of George Orwell's famous 1984 are commonplace in Canada. Propaganda, monopoly, warmongering, forced equality, twisted language, and an abdication of individual responsibility to the state in all but the least important matters. End quote. And remember, that was the old normal, as it already existed in 1984. So the question to ask is about the new normal. Was it an inevitable repetition of the so-called cycle of history that continually seems to repeat itself? We'll find out when we return. Hope you had a great Christmas, Toby. Did you get anything special? Well, I did actually, Anthony. Uh -huh, Thank uh -huh. you for asking. My father-in-law bought me George Orwell's 1984 from Costco's discount bin. I was telling Greta about the book, and that it reminds me of COVID and the mainstream media. Well, she said I was crazy because it's only a made-up story and it would never happen. Actually, Reuters did a book review on it, and they gave it two plus two stars equals five. first, I can't tell you exactly when it was, but when I when it first occurred to me that, oh my God, the, the, the bits only fit together if this is about control and potentially population, I, I can assure you, I didn't sleep well. I didn't sleep properly for weeks, you know, two hours at a time, and I would wake up, I would open my eyes, and I'd see evil just out in the dark. So whatever's going on, whatever's driving this is, you know, it's darker than anything that's happened this century. 
But unfortunately, there are numerous examples in the last century of, of people who are able to do this. I, I remember famously um, one of the statements of, I think, Stalin or attributed to him was that a single death is a tragedy and a million is a statistic. And I, I think there are plenty of people involved in this crime that think that way. You know, if it, it, probably if they injured a person or someone close to them suffered and died, they'd cry just like you and I, but they have no problem in, in giving an order that will result in, you know, 10 to the 6, 10 to the 7 people dying. I think they have no problem with it. And that's... Uh, Mike, it's the same yeah. people. It's the same people who have been responsible for all of these horrific things that happened over the centuries. I mm. remember Vera Sharaf telling me that she couldn't believe, she's a Holocaust survivor, yeah. she couldn't believe she's still fighting the same people or at least the same system that she fought mm. 80 years ago. So we're dealing with the same structures. We're still dealing with the same evil-minded people. But this time, we're going to do them in. This Absolutely. time is different. That was, of course, Dr. Reiner Fulmich in conversation with Dr. Mike Eden as part of the Corona Investigative Committee, Session 26, conducted on January 7th of this month. Well, I'd certainly like to believe that this time is different, and it may well be that the people responsible for our current round of injustice may be brought to some form of justice. But then who will fill the vacuum they leave behind? And how would we be able to recognize them to perhaps prevent history from repeating itself again? So here again, from 1984, a Freedom Party issue paper entitled History Lesson and, coincidentally, written by yours truly. And it goes like this. They say that history repeats itself, but it is frightening how so many people actually accept this axiom without ever questioning the premise on which it rests. Many regard the cycle of, you know, prosperity, recession, depression, threat of war, war, recovery, as an almost natural progression of historical events as if somehow they were all predestined. Thus, the inflationary spirals, high unemployment, mass unrest, impending national bankruptcies, the buildup of government arsenals, the threat of war, all these and more have come to be seen simply as part of that everlasting, ever-repeating cycle of human history. It's inevitable, right? Wrong. But it has been an observable pattern of history for almost as long as history books have been in existence. So perhaps it's a question worth asking. Why does history repeat itself? And if there's a lesson to be learned from history, why isn't it self-evident if it's so invaluable? Why? Because the cycle of history is really a cycle of politics. And too many of us would rather blame each other for our social, economic, and political problems than blame the governments we must all accept responsibility for supporting. In the same way that we've come to accept the cycle of history as being basically inevitable, we've also come to accept the uncounted thousands of relatively minor circumstances that make the major historic trends impossible to avert. You know, things that we think are just little things. Like letting our governments get away with nationalizing and monopolizing complete sectors of industry and commerce. Basically, education and healthcare are two of the biggies. 
like letting them centralize their authority, like letting them establish civilian security services, like letting them impose metric or official bilingualism, or like accepting government control and regulation of the media, or like permitting censorship. You know, little things. <laughs> How ironic that these little things are amongst our biggest things of concern today. And because all these little things on an individual basis seem insignificant when compared to the global problems like starvation, famine, or war, big things, we just keep letting our governments get away with more of them. So there's the culprit, our cycle of history. By letting governments get away with all those little things, the major historical trends become an inevitability with the only variable being the amount of time required to reach the point of no return. And one thing that history has taught us is that there's never been an exception to this rule. Because government, you see, must come to be seen for what it is, an institution of legalized force. And because of this reality, it is the nature of governments to take, not to earn, to threaten, not to encourage. Injections, anyone? Vaccinations, anyone? <laughs> Asking government to offer any service other than those that protect our individual rights and administer justice is the same as giving those governments the right to initiate the use of force against our neighbors and against ourselves, which, of course, is a clear violation of individual rights. Once we've accepted the use of force as a legitimate manner of achieving our objectives, whether they are noble or not, then we've already lost the moral and often legal right to object to the consequences. That's what we're seeing today. That's why we're seeing our legal system fall apart. And the greatest consequence of all is our loss of freedom a loss that is always followed by the threat of economic chaos, civil strife, and, of course, even war. And make no mistake about it, we are in a war today. What price freedom? What cost? The lack of it. Now, I don't know if today we would use the term individual rights in the context that it was used here, because this gets back to a conversation we recently had with Freedom Party of Ontario leader Paul McKeever about how the rights argument can actually be used to violate rights, particularly when placed under a condition of fascism. But I'm sure that's a discussion we'll revisit on a future show. Now here's another issue paper that was written in 1984, and this was written by a fellow named Murray Hopper, who has long since passed away. But this was a brilliant observation on socialism and the war on wealth. And I quote, I've been rich and I've been poor, and honey, rich is better, said the late Sophie Tucker. A New Democrat MPP recently proclaimed that, quote-unquote, excess wealth should not be allowed to exist and that wealth should be redistributed through a, quote-unquote, more equitable tax system. That such an obvious and evil contradiction in terms went so easily unchallenged is truly remarkable. When a private citizen attempts to redistribute the wealth of others, we call the act by its true name, theft. When a politician does exactly the same thing, he calls it by an entirely different name, equity. Thus, by some mysterious alchemy, stealing is transmuted from the base metal of criminal activity to the pure gold of high and noble purpose. 
Author George Gilder, in his book Wealth and Poverty, describes the inevitable outcome of this political deception this way. One of the little probe mysteries of social history is society's hostility to its greatest benefactors, the producers of wealth. On every continent and in every epoch, the people who have excelled in creating wealth have been the victims of some of society's greatest brutalities. Pointing to the fate of Jews in Hitler's Germany, the pogroms against the Russian kulaks, the slaughter of the Igbo tribesmen in Nigeria, the killing of almost a million Chinese in Indonesia, etc., Gilder continues, Everywhere the horrors and bodies pile up in the world's perennial struggle to rid itself of the menace of riches of the shopkeeper, the bankers, the merchants, the traders, the entrepreneurs, at the same time that the toll also mounts in victims of unnecessary famine and poverty. Invariably, those who conscript wealth, politicians, rail against those who create wealth, capitalists, revealing the bitter envy of those who are able to make their way productively in the marketplace. The rich in our society must feel like the character in the Kafka play who is found guilty of being innocent, especially if their wealth resulted from business activity. And you know, this explains so much of what's continuing today. That's why you have to understand this is not about COVID or anything like that. Ayn Rand wrote her book, The New Left, The Anti-Industrial Revolution, decades ago. And this still defines exactly what's going on. We're, we're dealing with an anti-industrial revolution, which makes it a death cult. Because human survival depends on industry and on production and on being able to create the food and the goods and the services we need to live. They're killing all of that. And yet it is the Canadian businessman and no one else who holds our best hope of getting us out of the mess we're in if... He can be freed from the tyranny of rapacious, parasitic governments and the terminal stupidity of those politicians who rush to penalize the most productive among us. We reject the notion that some people can be helped by confiscating the wealth of others, since it is that very wealth which, when invested in productive enterprise by those who earned it, will provide the means and opportunities necessary to make self-sufficiency an achievable goal for all. Coming up next is a short collage of public opinions about the trucker's convoy and the COVID mandates in general. As taken from Laura Lynn Tyler Thompson's coverage of the convoy, Canada Poly's Mark Paralavos in his online kitchen table talk, and the rebel media's Drea Humphrey. Hey guys, how are you doing? Good, how are you? This is awesome. So this is... This is what brings you out here tonight? Yep, came here from Cranbrook, three hours away. Wow. I'm so over it. Yeah. <laughs> Ready what are to... you over? I am over the vaccine mandates. I am over mask mandates. I'm over not being able to go to my own prom this year because I'm not vaccinated. And not having my mom come to my commencements because she's not vaccinated. Yeah. That's the stupidest thing. Awful. I am ready for Justin T Trudeau to realize that this is what it's come to. Right. We're done. We're, We're done. And the mandates. Yes. <laughs> and I thought Canada was about the land of the free. <laughs> so that's why we're here. We're standing up for our freedom. I love and it. we're done. Hi there, sir. Hi. 
Represent free choice. Yeah. yeah. What does that mean to you? It means, uh, well, the truckers are doing it for us, basically, but we should have the free choice of uh, choosing to get vaccinated or not. So uh, has what have the consequences been in, in your life that have brought you to make such a, a strong stand being out here in the freezing cold, sir? Well, I'm losing my job. I lost my job. <laughs> I have no job. So and I, I work for the federal government. <laughs> so it's it's totally me not being vaccinated has nothing to do with giving more COVID to someone. Everyone is equal, vaccinated uh. or not. It doesn't matter. The Why would I lose Omicron. my job? What's that? The vaccinated brought Omicron to our nation because we weren't flying and they brought it from other places. So it doesn't make any sense that I, I would catch COVID more than someone vaccinated. It doesn't make any sense because they say vaccination will not prevent you to get COVID. So what? You know, why? Why is this happening? It's Why ridiculous. Is it happening? It's a nonsense. Why indeed? Why indeed? Right? That is the question everyone should be asking. The Australian truckers tried this and it was a nothing burger in the media. I talked about it and I said, I'll update you. And what happened? I mean, Australia is still a nightmare totalitarian state, right? Like, so terrible. Um, so I'm hopeful. I hope that we get some kind of um, solution through the truckers, but uh, I don't know. I don't know. Well, I agreed Ryan, with what sorry. you said. I didn't get through your whole show this morning, but I, I really agree with what you said that they can, it's not that we're not hopeful about this and hopeful that it's going to make a difference, but I just, history repeats itself. And I look on past history, what's happened with Australia mm -hmm. and other mm -hmm. countries, and even here, what happened with the, the, their protest against, um, what was it? Oh, the Alberta and all that stuff. Like uh, that United we roll, red vest yeah. or yellow vest. Yeah. That, and that's, that's it. They, what they do is even if, if there's a protest that seems to strike a chord like United we roll or, or uh, yellow vest, then they vilify. Like they're like, okay, here's the leader of United we roll. Let's get them. Here's the leader of the yellow vest. Let's get them or her, whoever they are. And, and they brand that person. They bring that person on the talk shows and then they do everything they can to delegitimize and destroy those people's re uh, reputations. And, and through that destroy the movement. And that's, I mean, that's just, that's just for breakfast. Like that's not even looking in for like, that's not even getting creative for solutions. That's just like what they're going to do. That's step one. We can return to plan A in England and allow plan B regulations to expire. As a result, from the start of Thursday next week, mandatory certification will end. Hi, did you know the UK just dropped their face covering mandate? Nope. No? Also, vaccine passports are optional now. For the UK? Yeah. Oh, that's good. Maybe I should move back there. That's good. We should just get rid of them completely. Absolutely. I think it's cool. <laughs> yeah? They're also not requiring vaccine passports anymore. What's your thoughts on that? I also think that's cool. <laughs> I think masculine mandatory is good. It's you, good. Okay. Yeah, yeah, it can prevent the virus. They're also not requiring vaccine passports anymore in the UK. It's optional. What's your thoughts on that? Uh, I think a vaccine is kind of 
um, it should be depending on the per individuals. Did you know the UK just dropped their face covering mandate? Really? Cool. Yeah. Actually, what do you think of that? Yeah, you don't have to wear a oh, face covering. I hate covering. British people, so it doesn't matter. Oh, you hate British people. Whoa. All right. I love it. If Canada said tomorrow you don't have to wear face coverings indoors, would you still wear them? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. So if they said, hey, you don't have to wear face coverings tomorrow, would you guys wear them again? I won't wear them now. <laughs> I would not. Maybe I would. I don't know. <laughs> uh, I think mask for us will be always. Always in a, a choice, yeah. Since all of this we kind of began, um, I haven't really worn a mask only a few times just for work, maybe a few times going into a grocery store. But the other day, uh, I'm just totally sick of it now. Went into IGA, I wasn't wearing a mask, um, and this guy stopped me, told me that I had to put one on. I was like, no, like I'm just gonna continue to do my shopping, grab my stuff, mind my own business, and get out of here. And then he continued to freak out. And I was like, look, man, like I'm a Canadian citizen. I'm going to stand up for myself and my country as I'm a patriot for my country to not comply with communism. Right. And then he proceeded to call me a racist because um, I told him I was a Canadian. He happened to be an Indian man. That's not what I intended at all. I just intended it's like, hey, both of us here should be standing up for our country. I know for a fact that that guy also does not agree with it but he's just choosing to comply because of the submissive nature of the city that we live in. How about you guys? What brings you out here? Um, supporting, right? Yeah. We're supporting everybody. Yeah. Okay. Oh, I came from Oh boy. There we go. And where are you from? I'm from Vancouver. Vancouver. I'm Laura Lynn yes. and I do a show. Right. Yeah, every day. And, and we talk about all these issues. Oh great, and somebody needs to be doing this. Pretty concerned about what's happening. We've got a lot of Canadians watching. We're getting uh, close to a thousand people. Oh, so, great. This yeah. might be the, the thing that finally gets the ball rolling. What, what do you think it is that has finally driven uh, the, the tough trucking industry, the medical people, the nurses that are now on the road uh, to link arms with them? Like, what has caused the tipping point? Uh, probably when the children were getting involved. Yeah. Yeah. Mama bear, papa bear fighting for your children. I think it took the parents to get involved. Yes. Maybe a perspective. Yeah, absolutely. What about you, sir? I'm a local from Golden. Yeah. Um, I own a local business. We're not allowed to ski here uh, anymore, although I've moved here 20 years ago to ski, so I'm kind of given a choice of either stick around Why or... Why can you not ski? Uh, yeah, Murray Edwards, I guess, is the answer to that. Is that um, a mayor or a... No, he's the owner of the Calgary Flames oh. and uh, also the local ski resort. That's one of the things, but really, we have a right to choose. Right. This yeah. is moving towards fascism, like, uh, so quickly. And uh, to move us in this direction is really awful. Um, I really like uh, grassroots. Uh, uh, activism. Uh, this is really inspiring. Uh, it reminds me of the On the Ottawa Trek from the 30s and I hope it doesn't end the same way. Um, I hope it moves forward what and gets bigger. What you say that? What happened? In the so after uh, the depression when there was people that were um, unemployed and in the street, they got rounded up, put in concentration camps for years, which made the parks here in, in, in this region as well as on the west coast uh, eventually, those people, after years of being in these concentration camps and work camps, they got paid nothing for it. They got on a train, 
and traveled all the way to the, or they were planning on going to Ottawa. And this was in the th early 30s. And uh, they got to Calgary. Uh, but if you take look at pictures, they're pictures of people all over the trains like there's thousands and thousands of people on these trains they get they get to uh regina where the rcmp have uh batons on a horse and they beat the crap out of everybody there they then uh, move them across into the prairies uh they 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 hired farmers they paid farmers to actually put these workers onto the farm to subsidize them so that they would spread them out and to reduce the communist effect of uh, the, the entire what was going on. But what happened was they actually politicized the farmers right across the prairies and then we got the CCF, which was the Co Cooperative Commonwealth Federation. That was the precursor to the NDP. It was the Regina Manifesto. And, and all of that great stuff came out of that. Our, our healthcare, our, this is democracy. This is democracy in action. You are listening to Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. And there's a bit of an irony in that last comment about how this democracy in action led to Canada's healthcare system, which is, of course, the very system that's now being used as the thing we had to flatten the curve to prevent from collapsing. And the comment that this fascism is moving so quickly is true, but the fascism was already well established in Canada back in 1984 and probably even earlier. Now you may have noticed something unusual about these issue papers being published by a provincial political party, the Freedom Party of Ontario. The topics reflect everything from federal and international politics to philosophy and ideology itself. So these are not and were never intended to be political platform pieces or the expression of any particular viewpoint that a Freedom Party supporter has to agree with to support the party. They're basically written to help anyone looking into the party to help identify the character, nature, and perspective of the party. It's ideology. It's philosophy. Our next issue paper was also written by Murray Hopper, who was one of the key founders of Freedom Party, and it might interest you to know that in his day, Murray was also a founder of the original CCF, which later became the NDP. So what caused him to abandon socialism and pursue freedom? Well, as he told me, reading Ayn Rand and becoming a landlord. <laughs> and given his deep understanding of the left-wing mind, his insights to the nature of the evil that we were up against was truly invaluable because they established, I mean for me at least, that a long-term perspective was an essential and necessary ingredient in the establishment of any permanent political party expected to be a contender against parties that have history going back to Confederation itself. I recall in the earliest days of Freedom Party's official registration telling the media, right out loud, that my guess was it would take at least 20 years for most Ontarians to be able to say they'd even heard about Freedom Party, let alone become a supporter or voter. So it comes back to a question raised a few shows ago by listener Murray T. The idea of how to fight for freedom in a productive way. And of course my answer was to produce something. And for us that meant creating an identity that is clear and consistent over time, making a record of the party's history and activity in the political marketplace, and establishing a base of knowledge and perspective that would be helpful to any future Freedom Party executive, leaders, candidates, and organizers, in a way that will keep them on the road towards freedom and not away from it. 
So here's Murray Hopper's issue paper entitled, The Misrule of Law, and I quote, Because man existed before the law, so did man's rights. The law evolved from the earliest days in order to protect those rights, whether known as divine law, common law, or natural law. This was its sole justifiable purpose. For example, thou shalt not kill, recognize and protects man's right to his life. What is the nature of the law, and how did it develop? Listen to these words of wisdom from ancient Greece and Rome, Solon of Athens. Equal laws for the noble and base give them certainty of being governed legally in accordance with known rules, or Aristotle. It is more proper that the law should govern than any of the citizens, and persons holding supreme power should be appointed only guardians and servants of the law. And from England, Sir Edward Coke, Leave all causes to be measured by the golden and straight meat wand of the law, and not to the uncertain and crooked cord of discretion. Or John Locke, Freedom of man under government is to have a standing rule to live by, common to every one of that society. But over the years, the concept of subjective law began to darken the air, a concept that was best illustrated by the philosophy of the German state in 1913. Quote, it is a wrong belief that the interest or the security of right and of political freedom requires the greatest possible limitation of the government by the law. End quote. The result of that philosophy, World War I and World War II. How sad to see the law decline over the last two centuries from something, in the words of Blackstone, permanent, uniform, and universal, and binding on both government and citizen alike, to become an instrument of public policy, a tool for tyrants, a provider of legal fictions for dictators, and yes, even a means to the political ends of relatively benevolent democratic governments. From the above, one is drawn inescapably to the following conclusion, that all social legislation is a perversion of the law, that government, having seized control of the law and thus being no longer bound by it, are able to use the law for their own purpose, to reward those whom they favor and to punish those whom they do not. As a result, we have laws that force landlords to subsidize tenants, that force childless couples and individuals to support and educate the children of others, and that force businessmen and taxpayers to underwrite failing companies. Thus, governments, abandoning their prime duty to protect our rights, rush to violate them. End quote. Now, in this context of the misrule of law, I caught an interesting comment made with regard to the rule of law on the January 16 post of a Kitchen Table Talk panel discussion hosted by Mark Paralavos. I just read an article called The, uh, the Myth of the Rule of Law, and mm -hmm. um, it's, uh, you can look it up online. It was published back in 1990 or something. It's quite long, but uh, the takeaway from it is that we're really ruled by men not by laws. Um, and when you get someone like Governor DeSantis, who from the very beginning, you know, one man took a hard stance and said, no, we're not doing this. And, you know, people just followed along. And uh, mm -hmm. now you're seeing it in Virginia. So I think that, you know, even though we think we have a rule of law, um, I think it's pretty evident by the courts that we really don't. We're governed by um, the wills of individuals such as Trudeau, Ford, and then the various actors in the, um, at the top mm -hmm. levels of public health. So that's all yeah. I'll say. 
Yeah, well, I think now we are. I think that there was, so the structure that was in place in Canada, the legal structure that was in place that was in Canada was set up to protect that, I think, and and take it out of the mob's hands and put it into the law's hands. But unfortunately, we've got activist judges who are more than happy to continue, what, all of this madness without any shred of evidence. The Oaks test is invalid. They're not interested in um, any kind of looking into this for accountability. Yeah, Stephen. Yeah, uh, our Supreme, like the, Viva calls them Supreme Leader Legault in Quebec, has basically mm-hmm. said there will be no discussion on any of my measures because of misinformation, and I'm just going to do it. Yeah. It's a totalitarian thing, right? And it's mm-hmm. uh, it, that's that's a very scary thing. Well, and they're and they're silencing anybody who speaks yeah. the truth, right? Like yeah. if you if you say yeah. I've got evidence that Hillary Clinton should be in jail, all of a sudden, man, yeah. you better also say and I don't intend to commit suicide. (laughs) That's kind of funny, actually, if it weren't so true. But the observation that currently we are being ruled by men and not by the rule of law is valid, I think. But it has to be remembered that a fact of that nature doesn't negate the concept or ideal of the rule of law. And just because a particular rule by man happens to coincide with something we like, That doesn't justify that such power should exist in the first place, and I think it's a point well taken. If we want to live under the rule of law and not of men, as paradoxical as it may sound, we have to elect the men who will establish and enshrine that principle as the basis of all law and justice. Neither constitutions nor laws will protect any of us unless we all consent to abide by those principles and laws and then enforce them. Now for our last 1984 issue paper, which again was written by yours truly and which was simply called Freedom. Quote, Freedom is having the right to choose, and it is our freedom of choice that is at the heart of every political issue. Politicians who restrict our freedom usually justify their action with the claim that their imposed economic and social restriction somehow serves the public interest. Then as members of the public, we come to assume that we will gain by giving up some of our freedom as individuals. Unfortunately, this is not so. Freedom-reducing measures justified by the the in-the-public-interest argument clearly favor the interests of one group of people over those of another group of people. Thus, for many, such measures not only restrict their freedom, but place them at a disadvantage with respect to those favored or not affected by the restrictive measures. The politicians who bestow a benefit on one group at the expense of another group expect and often get political support from the people who receive the benefit. At the same time, the punished groups seldom retaliate by withdrawing their support because they've been conditioned to believe that their sacrifice is in the public interest. But as they all eventually discover, the public interest really means in the governing politicians' interests. All of Canada's large political parties recommend and follow policies that seriously restrict our choice of language, units of measurement, entertainment, products, services, employment, and a multitude of other things. The only difference between the parties is not whether freedom of choice should be limited, but whose freedom is to be restricted for whose benefit. End quote. And since penning those words, I have found them to be universally applicable to every political issue I've ever encountered. 
Now, coming up next is part of an interview conducted between Laura Lynn Tyler Thompson and her guest, Dr. Roger Hodkinson, whose voice has been featured on our show before. Normally speaking to the medical side of the issue, here is his political and social observation on our current pandemic. Great news. Boris Johnson um, announces today that he is ending the mandates. Yes, uh, as I've been saying for the last few weeks, um, the dam's about to break. Um, there's going to be a domino effect uh, across the world. Um, the evidence is overwhelming that this madness um, had to stop sooner or later. Um, political necks are on the line, of course. Um, these are not decisions that are being made on the medical evidence. They're being made, excuse me, very much on the basis of the need for political survival, in the hope of political survival. But I hate to tell any politician listening, it's too late. If you want to save your skin, it should have been before the dam broke, when you put the standard in the ground and you said, I was wrong. It's too late now. You missed your chance, and with it goes your pension. Have I got your attention yet? The, the truth will always out. It's just a matter of time. I said over a year ago, this is a hoax, the scale of which has never been seen before. The virus is real. I'm not an anti-vaxxer. I'm not a great resetter. I don't believe in 5G and graphene oxide and all that nonsense. I'm an evidence-based pathologist who can read the tea leaves. And um, the fortune teller is now saying, um, in terms of the old politics, you're done. You're done. You, you've lost our respect. We don't trust you anymore. Um, I, I think, I've been saying this publicly, Laura Lynn, I, I believe that COVID, to a large extent, is a very fortunate event because we've been losing freedoms progressively over decades little bit by little bit by little bit each slice that is survivable and people don't want to react to it but it's this has reached the point now with covid where i hope everyone can see how um evil government and bureaucracy can be um without any evidence for their actions and I, I think it's going to be the start internationally of a new politics, politics that are based upon traditional traditions, freedoms, culture, um, the, the need to be honest. Um, I, I think there'll be a realignment of parties. We're seeing that already in the States and uh, to a certain extent in Britain, Nigel Farage, for example, um, and... Uh, a similar leader is yet to emerge in Canada. Maxime Bernier, of course, is the closest, and he has my full support. But um, no, there's going to be a realignment of politics. Government backed themselves into a corner from the get-go, and the number one rule in politics, of course, is never apologize, just double down, progressively, making it worse and worse. You know, Einstein said famously, you know, about stupidity, doing the same thing over and over again and expecting the outcome to be different. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure out how stupid this has been for two solid years. So, yeah, I, I, I agree. The, there's going to be a redefinition 
of relationships, um, not just in medicine, but in politics. Um, it's hard to predict exactly how that's going to transform life. But, you know, the average patient who's being denied information from their doctor um, that could have informed them as to how to react to these different decision points that government's been imposing on us. Um, um, medicine is not going to be the same. Medicine, people will not have that innate trust in physicians that they used to have. Um, it, it's, we've, we've lost that. Governments have been introducing these psychological operations, these psyops, intentionally to drive fear. That's not the role of government. The role of government should be to assuage fear, to try to help you through difficult times. Instead of making you so fearful, trying to drive you to a decision to take a vaccine that could possibly kill you. So reputations are going to be slaughtered. Um, there'll be a real alignment of politics and medicine. Um, it, it'll be a, an incredible learning experience for humanity. But I, I believe that when the general public re starts to read the autopsy of what happened, I'm talking about the process that's been underway, the autopsy of the process for the last two years. It's, the books are being written right now by the likes of Paul Alexander and Alex Berenson and Delling Pole in Britain. And that will be in lay language. It will be easy to understand for the lay public how they have been lied to in the most monstrous way over a period of two years. You cannot suppress the truth forever. And as Martin Luther found, you know, the basement printing press, you, you, the truth is going to come out. And when the lay public really get to grips with how much they've been lied to, how many children have died from vaccination, either now or in the next five years, when, when that penny starts to drop, the general public are going to be revolted, total revulsion of, of how they be manipulated by politicians. Political careers are going to be slaughtered. There'll be blood in the gutter, and we're just starting to see the start of it with Boris Johnson having to admit finally, finally, that they took the wrong direction and they're lifting all these mandates. They'll, they'll dress it up, of course. They'll try to find mealy mouth ways of, you know, explaining things, hand wringing in public and so on and so on. But I'm sorry, the gig's up. We got your number. You lied to us. Not just a little bit, but you lied to us in major ways over a period of two years. We lost our businesses. We saw our loved ones suffer terrible complications of vaccines. We've seen our children denied two years of education with lifelong consequences. We've seen devaluation of our currency, essentially, because of inflation. We've seen all these horrible, horrible consequences that could have been totally avoided if the Great Barrington Declaration had been followed from the get-go. Namely, simply protect the vulnerable. Let life go on as normal. Let the virus do its thing. 
Let us develop herd immunity the natural, safe, cheap, fast way of giving it to each other. Because that's the only way to handle it. But oh no, they had to beat their chests. The macho politicians wanted to be your savior. Zero COVID. It couldn't be done. It's impossible. They wouldn't listen to the evidence. They went ahead anyway. And now you will reap the consequences at the next election. The gig is up. The media used to be a trusted source of news. It is no longer. You just have to look at the front of any newspaper. It used to be a headline on the front page. Now it's an advertisement. There are an industry that's dying because of the electronic media. And of course, when Mr. Fancy Socks stuffed their mouths with gold, they decided it was better to toe the line, didn't they? Because you don't bite the hand that feeds you. Despicable reaction by the print media. And of course, the, the electronic media uh, are being run by, by woke plutocrats down in California who have their own vision of the Great Reset. Um, I think we need, obviously, regime change. We need a change of direction at the top because we've only got to this point, in my opinion, because of the universities being the ultimate culprit. The junior faculty of all universities now is, are overwhelmingly rampant socialists, if not communists. And so when the children head out to university and get the message again reinforced, it, it's accepted, isn't it? It's the norm. If I was ever to be the Minister of Education, on day one, I would solve the problem. I would turn off the spigot to the universities. I'd make them toe the line. There'd be a howling and gnashing of teeth, of course, that this was an attack on liberty, when of course that's doublespeak. It's exactly what they've been doing for decades, is eliminating piece by piece our liberty and our freedoms. Now there's a haunting passage about politics in Orwell's actual novel, 1984, that practically summarizes our theme today. And I quote, It was not desirable that the proles should have strong political feelings. All that was required of them was a primitive patriotism which could be appealed to whenever it was necessary to make them accept longer working hours or shorter rations. And even when they became discontented, as they sometimes did, their discontent led nowhere, because being without general ideas, they could only focus it on petty, specific grievances. The larger evils invariably escaped their notice. End quote. Wow. Now, in that context, and it may not feel like it, but you know, the petty specific grievances are, among other issues, COVID and climate change, each covering as a front for the larger evil of the Great Reset and all of the fascist agendas at play behind these distractions. Now finally, on our theme of 1984, here was a description of Freedom Party in terms of left or right, as we published it then. And this was something I wrote, and see if you can spot the minor error that we made at the time. Freedom Party, left or right. Quote, 
No labels, please. Freedom Party is not a left-wing party, and it's not a right-wing party, and here's why. Left-wing groups like to restrict our economic choices, limit trade, and monopolize labor. Right-wing groups like to restrict our personal choices, control trade, and monopolize business. The groups who claim to be middle of the road simply like to do both, and the road they're talking about is the road to total state control of our personal lives. Freedom Party simply doesn't travel on that road. It doesn't bother us that we're not on the left, the right, or the middle of a road that leads in the opposite direction of where we should be heading. The road we've chosen to follow leads towards freedom, not away from it. Freedom Party believes that the purpose of government is to protect our freedom of choice and not to restrict it, end quote. And by the way, but not insignificantly, that last sentence also appears on each and every issue paper I've been highlighting today. I just wanted to save a bit of time along the way so I didn't repeat it. But did you catch the error? It was in the first sentence. No labels, please. If I were to rewrite it now, it would read, no wings, please. Or perhaps, use the right label, please. And today, Following the sentence, the road we've chosen to follow leads towards freedom, not away from it, I would add, it's not right-wing, it's just right. And as subtle an error as that may have seemed, it was no mere semantics. Consider the political and moral polarity of the left and right as your political compass. To help you be clear of the direction in which you're heading, just as with the polarity of the magnetic north and south poles, there are no variant polarities. There's no other positions. You know, you often hear the disconnect between politics and individual freedom expressed as a variant of, this isn't about left and right, it's about freedom. As if both the left and right shared some individual freedom as a value. This has never been the case, and the failure to realize this falls squarely on the shoulders of those of us who would consider ourselves on the right. There's a reason for that, and that's because the eternal vigilance required for the maintenance of freedom is a responsibility entirely of the right, since it is the left against which eternal vigilance must always be applied. If we lose sight of this extreme polarity, which is why there is no middle of the road, then we've already lost the battle. Left and right begin as ideological polarities, not as political ones. The politics merely mirrors the ideologies. The left represents all variants of collectivism, while the right represents the single, invariable truth that makes individualism and freedom possible. It also accounts for the name of our show, which is why you should be joining us again next week as we continue our journey in the right direction. And until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be Really, uh, it's impossible to pick up a newspaper these days without reading something about a protest or a march or a demonstration. This group is protesting another group's march and demonstrating against their bonfire and their rally. The pickets are against the pickets. They're picketing the pickets now. There's even one group that next week is having a parade to protest the fact that they can't get a parade permit. Now that's kind of strange. <laughs>
It's really, uh, it's getting just a little bit out of hand. Uh, the uh, Hertz renter pickets are doing wonderfully, of course. But the signs are what really scare you from time to time. Let's get out of Vietnam. Let's get out of the UN. Let's get out of the street. We're blocking the traffic. <laughs> ban the bomb. Bomb the ban. Genghis Khan is alive in Argentina. <laughs> he is not. Join the Mother's March on Sore Feet. <laughs> it's gotten very strange. I even saw one guy with a sign that had nothing on it, absolutely blank, except down in the bottom it said, your grievance in this space called Judson 4 1400. 